Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our 11th episode. Can you believe it, Mandy? 11. No, it's amazing. for doing this. <laughs> I don't know how we've managed it with you all the way across the world. You know, I think something like, I remember the, the stats were something like, you know, nine out of 10 podcasts fall out by their 10th episode. We're so aware. We're in the 10%. How's that? Yes, we're going to make it. So today we're going to discuss the ADL of shoe tying, both from an ABA and OT lens, and the best way to achieve this goal using various strategies. But before we go there, I can hear the contentions brewing already, especially from the OT side. You know, ABAs have more time on, you know, shoe tying than we do. So I am going to offer you some strategies to overcome this barrier in OT that you won't want to miss. Plus, we're going to talk about some adaptations that you may use with students and then offer you some evidence-based options for shoe tying, tag teaching and video modeling. But the resource, which is lovely to have, is a task analysis. Now, I'm not talking about a very simplistic, in the OT world at least, the task analysis of step one, step two, step three. This is an in-depth component analysis to really figure out what a student needs in order to be able to do shoe tying? What are the basic component skills they need? So really excited about that. And our shout out for the week, Mandy, take that away. Yeah, I happened to find this app by accident when I was looking for something else at Eddie and through all of our discussions, you know, it became very obvious to me that I needed to know more about anatomy when I was going to be you know, intervening on things like hand strengthening and other things that I've been very motivated to do as a result of working with you. And I found this amazing app, which is called Complete Anatomy. I was speaking to my podiatrist this week and he uses this in a lot of his lectures. But it's just the most awesome tool and there might be other ones, but this one that I found breaks down the body system into all the various different components of skeletal and connective tissue, muscular and arteries. Um, I'm just going through all of the things here. And the nervous system, it starts with the skeleton and then you can layer on all the different parts of the body. So you can see all of the muscles and the layers of muscles. So it's really interesting when you look at things like feet and hands to see, you know, how the muscles actually work. So, yeah, that is my uh, shout out for the week is to anybody that wants to know more about anatomy. There's videos on there, particularly good for people that are studying anatomy. But if you just want to learn more about the body, it's a a really wonderful app. There is a free trial period and then there is a free version. And if you want to uh, get more advanced with it, then there is a, a paid subscription as well. Brilliant. Well, I'm so proud of you, Mandy. You're such a behavioral OT. Look at you. <laughs> well, fancy, I'm, fancy. Do- <laughs> I'm down on the floor with my kids doing, you know, uh, the meatball and uh, Superman. I better, <laughs> I better understand why it hurts so much down there. So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Good for you. Okay, well, let's move on here with Sam, our favorite little friend. Can you give us a little recap on his fine motor, fluency, foundation skills? What's going on? Absolutely. So, you know, when Sam first presented to us, he had had a lot of other intervention that, including OT and speech, that 
hadn't really gained any momentum because of his severe and challenging behaviour. So he presented to us with, well, one of the earliest things I noticed about him is that he had these little plastic locks on his shoes, which we'll talk about shortly, to stop him throwing his shoes across the room. But he also engaged in high rates of aggression and uh, self-injury and really high rates of vocal stim, which really interrupted your ability to teach him. And one of the high priorities of his mother was to teach him shoe tying, but I worked out very early on that there were a whole lot of missing skills for him to be able to tolerate being prompted and having someone sit next to him very closely. And, you know, the behaviour was a combination of, you know, profound skill deficit and uh, particularly in in language and attention, but then also, you know, gaining attention inappropriately through aggression. So over time, as we started to intervene on his ability to sit and attend and access reinforcement for all of the things that compete with the aggression, then, you know, we started to be able to look at fine motor skills and teaching him component skills of shoe tying and handwriting. And last week we talked about the big six, so we used all of those with him to get improve his hand strength and uh, particularly his pincer grip, which is a prerequisite for, for shoe tying. And now he is tying his shoes without throwing them across the room, which is a real bonus. But also, you know, one of the best things that's occurred between him and I, because he absolutely loves it, and um, we set ourselves a goal for when to complete that the shoe tying and he was absolutely determined that we were going to achieve it together. And that came about through a lot of practice and that's what we're going to talk about today. Brilliant. Well, so there's little plastic things you're talking about. Yeah, this is um, obviously prescribed yes. by an OT, I bet. So, yeah, it's up <laughs> Guilty, <now>. for sure. <laughs> but go ahead, tell us about those things. Well, I mean, there's several options out there, but I have seen... Uh, specific type. They're like, they're like little plastic hooks that you might find on your sweatshirt or jumper. You know, those uh, fleece jumpers often have them. Yeah. It's a string and you squeeze the plastic and then when you release it, it sort of locks into place. So it really helps because it prevents the shoes from loosening or unknotting. Or if you have a student like Sam who really wants to purposefully untie them, it's a it's a nice deterrent or blocking the behavior, I guess. So they come in various sizes. So we'll put it on our Facebook group just so the audience has an idea of what to get. But, you know, often in OT, those are our go-to. We would use something like that to block that, block the habit of untying, for example. And then the other option is sort of transferring to Velcro, Bef- until they learn how to shoe tie. Yeah. Now, just from my experience, Mandy, the problem I've had with that, once the student realized they can use Velcro with quarter of the effort, they're yeah. like, why should I? Bo-? Like, I've lost that motivation of wanting to shoot, tie shoes. So I stopped doing that. <laughs> I didn't yeah. introduce that as an option anymore. Yeah, it's also they're very easy to untie to. So if you have kids that you're doing therapy with and you want them to keep their shoes on because they tend to be, their feet tend to be more stable if they have shoes on rather than bare feet or socks, which they kick off. Yeah, I think it's a really good reason. And, you know, all of the cool shoes have laces. I mean, so a lot of the cool shoes have laces. So 
it's important to be able to tie shoes. And also, it's just one of those things that we call behavioural cusps, whereby yeah. if you can use your hands in that way, manipulate, this is a really complex skill, right? It's only when you come to mm-hmm. teach shoe tying that you can't believe that you just do it automatically without thinking about it. But it's also dependent on the size of the laces, the length of them, how tight you want the shoes. There's, you know, you've got to tighten up the crossovers. It's really a complex skill. So I noticed that as I started to get improvement in this, all of his other, you know, uh, we caused improvement movements in lots of other skills as well so there's there's good reason for practicing it and it's a, it is a, a skill that you generally use every day less for kids going to school that are wearing tie shoes so you know some things you might only do once a week but something like shoe tying you do every day so it's a really good skill to get fluent at and have continued practice at yeah you know i wanted to mention another adaptation that i've seen ot's use i have not used these but they have laces that have a little bit of velcro on them Oh, yeah. So when you make the bunny ear, it stays together. Mm, right. And then you fade out, obviously, that adaptation as necessary. But I've never used it, but I've, I've seen OTs who've done that. So I will tell you, we get 100% as far as creativity and resourcefulness. I definitely am proud to say that OTs are really good at that. But it's phasing that out, you know, sometimes can be a bit tricky. But I wanted to talk about the prerequisites for shoe tying that you mentioned because in OT, we look at, so I'm going to just label off some aspects we might look at, yeah. which you probably call mentalisms, but <laughs> this is what it is right now in OT. You know, it's it's visual perceptual skills. It is auditory processing, appropriation, which is how they can feel the laces in their hands without looking. It is those coordination skills, gross motive, you know, fine motor, and then bilateral. So those are the component skills when an OT is looking at the task of shoe tying. But I want to get your perspective because yours is a little bit, it's a lot more finite and it gives a little bit more direction of where to start. So tell me what you would look at. So, yeah, I think I guess I have to talk generally in terms of what I look at for every child that needs to have attentional skills to be able to wait in the presence of instruction without engaging in any interruptive behavior. They also need to maintain, you know, eye contact both between the instructor or the teacher or the OT and back to the stimulus that they're using. So we have talked a little bit about this with Sam before, but some of the things that I train, particularly with children on the spectrum, because, you know, their language, they don't necessarily pick up on the same cues as a typically developing child would be, is, but we train a protocol that trains attention on a particular colored card, and we just happen to use a red card. And basically on that red card, it means that your hands are either folded or flat on the table and that you're not engaging in any wiggling or interruptive, you know, self-stimulatory behaviour or vocal stereotypy. So that you can actually get the child's attention. And one thing in particular that this that Sam had was really high rates of ocular stim. So, you know, I, I did a lot of time thinking about how this comes about because he's not the only student that has it that presented to me before. But he was highly reinforced by looking at lights and movement in the environment. And I think because, you know, everyone will engage in behaviour that, you know, gives you a certain level of arousal and because he wasn't, you know, getting reinforcement from 
talking to people or engaging appropriately with people or he couldn't even play games on the iPad really. He could watch YouTube videos but he couldn't manipulate the iPad. And so, you know, you're going to fill in the gaps, right? This is what we do as human beings. If there's nothing to do, we find something to do in the gaps. And he just like would constantly turn his head to the side and look up to lights. And of course, this is a massive barrier in all skills, particularly, you know, we taught him in the early days rapid automatic naming, like looking at, you know, pictures and naming them to increase his vocabulary and also his ability to remember them again. But he would, you know, look at two pictures and then look up and look at two pictures and look up. So we had to get his attention under control. We had lots of ways of doing that. But in particular, something that comes from the direct instruction world is using a signal because, you know, a typical cue for a typical child is, hey, you need to look at me to get the information, right? Or, well, keep looking at me because there's something I need to tell you. And then the child could attend to that instruction. But we use a signal and we probably do more work on this down the track, Eddie, because it's such a useful tool to direct a kid's eyes to where they should be looking and to teach them that they, that while that signal is pointing in that direction, they need to keep looking at that stimulus. And so we do a lot of training around that of getting kids eyes under what we would call instructional control of like you know looking at the signal which is literally just a pen or like I happen to use a red pencil because that's just what I've always used and we train that and go okay look here look here and it's it's a little bit like you know a point in other words you know kids will follow points obviously but this signal is a very distinct cue to say this is where you need to look right now and then when you are instructing them around the shoe there's the pencil or signal goes down to the shoe and go this is where your eyes need to be right now this was transformative for Sam because we did a lot of practice we eventually we started training just by you know looking at the signal within a 15 second timing and moving his eyes around from the table back to the instructor to the to the stimulus that we were teaching back to the eyes up in the air back at the table so we had these eyes under our control and then we could direct his eyes at the shoe because you really have to look very, very carefully at a shoe for quite a long time to make sure that yeah. you're manipulating the shoe. Now, if you're constantly looking away, you're going to make a lot of errors and it's really, you know, oh, my goodness, I nearly used a mentalistic term there of frustration, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can evoke behaviour. I'm rubbing that? off on you. I'm rubbing <laughs> off on you. Like, okay, let me restate that behaviourally. So <laughs> it could evoke, uh, you know, problematic behaviour because the child, you know makes an error slams their hand on the table and may get reinforced for that so they tend mm-hmm. to do that behavior again so the important thing is attentional skills when you are doing is so important and I think it warrants an episode on its own on how to train. yes I was gonna say <laughs> that's something how we need to do to train attention but for now if you have a child who's who's will look away from shoes when you're trying to teach them you've got to stop Stop the shoe tying yeah. and train, you know, sustained eye contact between teaching materials and the coach or the, or the therapist, coach as we call them at Fit Learning. That's a prerequisite skill. That was a really long answer, wasn't it, Aditi? I'm sorry for training uh, component no, no, skills. No. So big six, fine motor, you know, I would say, um, ex, you know, off the chart uh, attention for maintaining eye contact on the teaching materials and not w- wiggling in the chair and moving about. And okay. that can be trained. And then then a really good task or component analysis to look at what the components are. And in particular for Sam, he the first time I tried to assess, because 
obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but if you already have a task analysis, you have a task analysis in front of you, you want to do a baseline measure to see what of those things can the child already do and Mm -hmm. what can they not. And then that will help you decide, okay, what do I need to teach? But the first time I ever put a pair of shoes down in front of Sam and said, all right, show me how you tie your shoes, which is a baseline measure because you're not going to provide any prompting. He just grappled at the laces at all different heights and he couldn't maintain his grip on them. And so we we trained almost like finger nipping, you know, like open and close pincer grip on both hands together at the same right. at the same time. Because you need to be able to manipulate both hands at the same time and open and close your pincer grip. So that was the first skill we trained, which was open and close pincer grip. We did it at 15-second timings because we're precision teachers, so we would set a timer and go, okay, three, two, one, and, you know, show me finger nipping or show me crab claws, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter, and keep going. And then making sure that he was pressing with sufficient force into his fingers, almost so that it would leave an impression on the between the thumb and the pincer. Is that a good way of describing sure. it? You know, obviously you could put in place some mechanism that actually, like, I don't know, put plasticine in there or something to show that he's actually gripping it hard enough. But you don't need to do that because you can assess by putting, you know, the, the actual laces in there and see if they can maintain their grip as they pull the laces up high. So we did a lot okay. of that. And then every day we would that we were training, we would practice that before we got started. Okay. So... I'm going to go back a bit as far as the visual attention. That's definitely something OTs would look at too. And how we typically would get around that, and I've done this myself, is I had a student who maybe is not very good at visual attention. So I find something he really likes. Like I had a student who loved Pokemon. And you know those beads you get? They're the, it's like a Pokemon character, but it's actually a bead yeah. or a clip. So I would bring those and anytime we worked on shoe tying, I would just clip that onto the laces. So he was motivated to look and then slowly we would phase that out. So I think OTs wouldn't go to what's the baseline missing skill level. Again, we're very, you know, we're all about adapting in the moment and getting, just because we don't have as much time too. I, I think that is a component here. But let's talk about time. So... You know, you, you talked about practice. That is something that is very hard to do when we see a student once a week. Yeah. I tell you, you know, but there's ways around that because with Sam, I was only doing, in inverted commas, behavioral OT, if you like. <laughs> I was only doing that once a week as well, but then I had to train his audience to work on the slice that we were on. So we've gotten pretty good at using, uh, there's lots of different tools, obviously, that you can communicate with other people on, but we, we start a project. We just happen to use Basecamp because that's what Fit Learning uses. But um, So we have a little conglomeration and we will, at the training slice, where we are currently training, um, the slice before that, we will teach parents or other therapists to practice the already trained slices. So having videos of what the child can already do, doing something that we call behavioural skills training, which a behavioralist will be very familiar with, but basically modelling, then having that person practice it, give them feedback and then have them teach it with the child is a really good way of getting day-to-day practice because you're absolutely right, Aditi. Doing this once a week is very slow progress and it's something that you need to do daily to get better at 
in you know in a, a reasonable period of time. So having a project and a little conglomeration where you go, okay, this is what we're currently training and this is how we're doing it. Parents, can you practice like this? Show me once and then do it each day. And we have a little reminder that goes to them at you know four or five o'clock in the afternoon that says, please practice shoe tying for five minutes today. It's a oh, real I like that prompt. Yeah, it's a really, really good way. You can put it in their Google Calendar or provided yeah. they're not annoyed by those reminders. But And then we have them confirm that they did it and we can then reinforce them. So, yeah, I have lots of tools for getting parents to comply. because it's That's re- a different episode. <laughs> that is <laughs> for sure. That's a, that's, a, that's a whole series right there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the point you're making is daily practice, very, very important when it comes to things like handwriting, shoe tying, all right. of those things, yeah. So I think this is probably my biggest bone of contention within OT is that we have let go of that expert model that we came from, right? OT is the sort of expert model. We have the knowledge, holistic knowledge of all this. We show a parent or caregiver how to do X, Y, and Z, and then they have to follow through. Where we have, as OTs have fallen, is that we don't know how to get the parents to follow through. Yeah. So, I mean, it's unlikely that OTs are going to get more time with clients. That's probably never going to happen. So we have to adapt and we have to go back to that expert model where we should be disseminating our expertise and having parents, caregivers, teachers follow through. At the school I work at, I had a student who I was doing shoe tying him with. Now, he doesn't have a lot of physical challenges. It was just basically, you know, what we call motor planning, figuring it out, all that. Now, I I saw him 10 minutes a week. That's it. 10 minutes. But incorporating that fluency piece made a world of difference. Because for that 10 minutes, what we would do, I would tell him, all right, you know, Johnny, you've got 10 trials I want you to get through 10, 10 of step one, and then you get to play with Play-Doh or whatever. And he was so motivated, and I got some repetitive practice in there. So I really think there are ways around it. Of course, I've also engaged paras, we call them here. They're um, student aides in the school, oh, Okay, uh, if they're willing to, to do it. So there are ways around it. So I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear it from OTs that, well, boo-hoo, we don't have time. Nobody has time, okay? We are not the same model as ABA. We are a different model, and we need to use the resources we have. So anyway, I'm going to stop. Yeah. (laughs) Get off my little show here and back to, okay, so we've got practicing down. I think the other barrier in OT that you mentioned was the task analysis or component analysis, which you've already shared a little bit, but I'm just going to give a little example. So when I see you know, Sam is having difficulty with shoe tying, I might make a general comment to you and say, well, uh, Mandy, you know, he doesn't have good hand strength, finger strength. Yeah. You know, that would be the first thing I might say. Or I might say, well, he's not got good in hand manipulation because he can't manipulate the, but it's about really going deeper and taking almost a magnifying glass. And I think that's hard for OTs. You know, as I said, we come from these huge mentalisms of labels of motor planning issues, bilateral coordination, so really narrowing it down. So I thought, Mandy, if you're okay with it, can we sort of go through the first, just to state the first step of shoe tying? Yeah, sure. What 
are you looking, what are the component skills? Okay, good. So now that we, if I move on from the hand strengthening side of things, because we talked about that in big six and you talked a little bit about how to measure hand strength, etc. And, you know, mm-hmm. I have always been a little bit chicken and egg here because, you know, there's two ways to go, isn't there? And I look at, you know, I always draw from sport because sport looks a lot at component skills and then, you know, uh, high level skills within sport. They do do a lot of drills to improve athletic strength, you know, outside of running, for instance, gym work and other things. But then they also do a lot of running too, <laughs> just to get better at running. So you know, there's mm-hmm. two ways to go here. If you have weak hands, can you just can your hands just get stronger by practicing shoe tying? Well, that, you know that that could be one thing. If you don't have time to practice hand strengthening, then maybe just go after it. You know, you know, it may be better to go after it in something easier than shoe tying. But you know, you can also just improve your hand strength by using you know through functional skills. So the first thing we did, other than the the big six skills to get big six plus six I should say to get his hand strength and his manipulation better we then literally the first step that we chose for him not every kid needs this after we train this open and close pincer grip do you want to call that anything mm-hmm. else am I describing that well enough that people could see it yeah that's so yeah that's perfect yeah like open and close so if you have your hands in front of you in front of your eyes your pointer finger is touching your thumb on both hands and going up and down up and down up and down now oh. I'm going to talk about fluency which is just speed and accuracy right so as precision teachers we would actually measure that from an OT perspective we're going to do measurement and precision teaching later on in our podcast hoping to change the world of showing you that it's not that hard to measure what you are training but you know for now you know we had an aim of about 200 per minute of opening and closing even though we only ran it for 15 seconds his pincer grip without making any errors and that the fingers were you know forming the same pressure and opening and closing at the same time so once we had done that, that was step one. We used that as a prime every time we practice three times. So when we started that drill each day, we go, okay, let's practice our pincer grip. And I would make sure that his rate of pincer grip, his open and closing of hands was still, you know, at a good level. Then step one was just to pick up the two laces. I, I called it the, at the base, but it's where the laces first come out of the shoe. You know, the, the bottom, mm-hmm. I guess the top hole of the, where the shoes come yeah. in. And I literally would just have him grab the laces. So three, two, one, you're going to practice grabbing laces and releasing them, grabbing them and releasing them, grabbing them and releasing them for 15 seconds. Now, you think that sounds hard, but it's only 15 seconds of a session. And I, now there's two ways to go here. We talked about this last week, but you know, when you're looking at rates of what someone should be able to do that without making errors to get fluency, you can just do it yourself and, you know, and then just adjust it a little bit if you have a child that's got some barrier behavior around hand strength. But so grab the laces, let them go, grab the laces, let them go. And, you know, we want kids to be able to do that a couple of times in a row where they have kind of reached a maximum performance. They can't do it much faster than that without making any errors. And the topography of the response is really Really good they're grabbing the, the laces the same way each time and releasing them and that's just a really important skill because you have to be it sounds easy but it's actually not for a kid because remembering that the shoe has to sit on the desk and you don't want to you don't want to make too much accommodation around you know attaching the shoe to a desk although you could do that I have taught shoe tying to other kids where I've got a whole lot of shoes like six or eight pairs of shoes and I've nailed them to a wooden board and they've stood up at a table and gone along and done each part of the shoe but here I have a little boy with a lot of interruptive behavior and I don't want him standing up, you know, and I don't want him to have to move too much. So I just use one pair of shoes. But I did have great success with another student who was older and his mum 
bless her, got a whole lot of shoes and attached them to a wooden board. And that's really good for fluency practice because as as the kid is doing one step in one shoe, you can be undoing it and they go at, along the line of shoes and practice that yeah. same step, you know, eight times before they come back and do the do, um practice that again so grab the laces at the base of the shoe was step one and release grab and release grab and release grab and release and then the next one because he the laces would get all mixed up so he would the next step was grab laces at base and pull up until there was about three inches left at the top of the shoe and what I did here we go, Daddy. I made an accommodation here because I was thinking of Ooh. you. Is I tied a little knot where I wanted him to get up to because otherwise he would, you know, go right past the top of the lace. <laughs> Does that make sense? He conceptually didn't yeah, yeah. understand that he had to stop at a certain point in order to cross the laces. So I tied knots in there and then I faded out those knots just with a piece of, gosh, I, we call we call it sticky tape. Do you call it that? Sellotape. There you go, yeah. sellotape. So uh, you sellotape and then, then I put, uh, I faded to a small little dot and then he didn't need it at all after that. So next was grab laces and pull laces up grab laces, pull mm-hmm. laces up, and I got that until that was really fluent as well, and I think it was about across the left and the right shoe. So grab the left shoe, grab the laces at the base, and pull them up. And the reason I was got a little bit off, task, uh, off topic there is because what happens when you do that is the shoe comes off the table because you right. the force of which you pick up the lace. So he had to mm-hmm. do it but maintain the shoe on the table because otherwise the shoe's floating in the air and it's very difficult to do anything when that's happening. So with fluent practice, though, that's where you get correction and error. So if we were doing that, so grabbing lace at base, pulling up the top and then dropping them and then doing it on the right shoe, dropping them, doing it on the left shoe, each time you know, there was an error, we would practice that component of the error. For instance, if the shoe came up in the air, I'd go, okay, let's stop there and practice just pulling up hard enough so the shoe remains on the table. Practice that again. Really good. Practice that again. Okay, now let's do it as a timing. And the next step from that, so once you had that really fluently without making any errors, and even though to some people that haven't done it this way, they might say, that sounds super boring doing that over and over again. Actually, kids love it because you can set them a person, mm-hmm. a personal best, right? And say, last time yeah. you did this 10 times. And if you do this 11 times this time, you know, you get a tick or a, or a, a token or clicks or whatever, okay. or, or a break. So next, so that was step one and two. And then step three next was crossing one lace over the other and holding it with his pincer grip. Mm-hmm. Next from there, we what happened next though is we got stuck at this point because there's different, obviously different ways of showing, tying shoes, but I was looking at what was best for his fingers. The next step that if you think about if you've got the laces crossed, you actually mm-hmm. have to hold the one lace with your left hand and then push the other lace through a hole. And right. so we took that little skill there of it's quite a complex skill, Adele. You better explain it better. But it's like the wrist is rotating over and, mm-hmm. and back. And I found that his wrist movement, he would move his whole arm but not his wrist. So we yeah, took that little yeah. movement of under, over, under, over. So I would get him to that point of the lacing without him having to practice that. And then mm-hmm. I would have him hold his hand on the other lace and then push 
the lace through and back, through and back, through and back, through and back. Mm, and that okay. skill actually translated to a whole lot of other things. Right. So right. because if you think about it, when you're moving a spoon, it's the same movement where you have to yeah. scoop things. Do you have a name for that, Aditi? <laughs> well, yes, you're right. There's wrist flexion extension wrist, involved. Thank you. That's what that it is. Internal, external yeah. rotation. Yeah. So when I was, you know, as you know, I'm working on precision teaching uh, for OT. And yeah. so I was actually working on shoot time just for this episode. And I was like, okay, so what would I look at? And... Jonathan Amy is is my mentor and he and I were talking about it and he said you know what from an OT perspective look at every muscle group yeah and what it has to do so that flick that you're talking about that would be that wrist rotation wrist rotation and so many so many children are missing that I see it across the board and it impacts handwriting, it impacts ADL, it impacts so many aspects. So isolating what specific movements yeah. are required to complete. Like when you were saying, you know, bring your hands together, that's bilateral coordination yeah. in OT, right? But with fluency, can you do it fast enough or yeah. is it too slow? Because that's going to impede things too. So absolutely. I think this is why this resource that we have in our episode today is so valuable because it really goes into this depth look at what's missing, like truly what's missing from a sensory, physical, behavioral, whatever, everything. It's like, what do you need to achieve this activity and how are you going to get there? But you can't get there unless you know the gaps, right? And I think that's what sets the stage in fit learning. We're so good at identifying gaps. As OTs, we're not as good. We're not as precise, I would say. We tend to have global terms for things. So your articulation of that was just beautiful. And we're going to have that in a text format for everybody as a resource. So thank you for that. But I wanted to ask you, do you incorporate tag teaching when you are doing this? Yeah, I use tag teaching for everything because we haven't done a shout out to Karen Pryor, but she is one of my heroes on the planet. She's an extraordinary human being and she created something called a clicker and basically we're going to have a whole episode on tag teaching because it will change your life and mm-hmm. some of my parents think it's a, like a magic wand because yeah. <laughs> like you it, it seems to magically create behavior I, you know with typically developing kids they actually really love these little clickers or tags yeah. tags you can get a variety of different ones box clickers and if you um I recommend that you go to Karen Pry's website because she she invented these things and she knows a lot about them I like the, yeah. the little oval-shaped ones. They come in lots of different colours and they also can come with something that fits around your oh, wrist. can I interrupt there? Yes. I just wanted to share with you that I've been using, so I've used tag teaching and fit, right? But I've been using it in OT for getting kids to write on the line. Great. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. It is like magic. And the other thing that I've been doing, which I know is probably not right, but at dinner, you know, I have three boys and they're at each other. And so I told them, I'm like, okay, the person who has the most compliments and is nice at the table with their brothers gets, you know, extra time video games. And I tag them when I hear something. Great. And they love it. They think it's so funny. Yeah, it's fun. And, yeah, we use it for everything where you need the something to identify that you got it right. 
because by the time mm-hmm. you use your voice, right, if you go, especially if, you, if it's moving quickly, like my, my training occurred with a lady who did a lot of, who was a gym instructor, is or was Teresa McKeon. So in gymnastics and things like that, you know, the when you point your toes, by the time you come to say, oh, that was a beautiful point, you know, the, the child has already moved on to the next movement. So this little tag is a way of going bang. That signals that that's exactly the right thing to be doing. We use it for identifying prosody and reading. We use it with our coaches when we tag the right intonation in the voice that they're using, when they're giving the right level of praise we use we use tag teacher for everything we use it with parents now we use i use it with my parents when they they use positive statements within parent training oh, yeah okay. i tag them Brilliant. when they use behavioral terms correctly during my parent training you can use it for anything where you don't want to stop instruction and go oh i loved the way you said that you just go tag and they right. know that they got it right so there's a million uses for tag teaching but particularly with shoe tying it is awesome because one two three pick up the laces you don't want to go oh good job picking up those laces you know click right that signals it was correct now because i happen to be very fortunate that i met karen Pryor in person she at you know and we can go into this in more detail but not only is it signaling to the learner that they got it right but there is you'll see with some kids (laughs) that are kind of highly sensitive to noise it almost makes you jump So my understanding Mm -hmm. is there's actually an impact on the amygdala as well. In other words, you know, I was just going to say that the ancient brain. So there is both for those of you who have watched our earlier episodes, like (laughs) uh, there is like an operant response of learning that that was the correct response. But there is also like a, that sound of the click Mm -hmm. is akin to the snap of a branch that would have signaled to us to be attentive. And you see it in kids, they almost jump sometimes after you click, it makes them really attentive to so this tag teaching is really phenomenal for anyone that wants to look at it. We will have a link to the website of yeah, um, the tag we teaching. Will, we'll talk about it. But this is how you so would use it. Is. So the kid grabs the laces, click, tag. Mm-hmm. They, they pull the laces up, tag. As soon as it's crossed in the right position, tag. And what that does is it signals to the child that they've done it correct or you can give them an instruction to fix it. So yeah, it makes yeah. them look attentively at what they're actually doing and go, mm, I didn't hear a click then. There must have been something. I need to adjust something. And so, yeah, tag teaching is very, very useful for ADLs. Well, I have so much to add to tag teaching, but I won't because that's another episode because there is a sensory component to that that I encountered with the students who had some auditory defensiveness. But We'll go into that some other day. For now, the last thing I wanted to ask you is video modeling. Yeah. I ran across a study uh, in the British Journal of Education in 2016. It was done. And what they did is they looked at the advantages of using video modeling versus in-person prompting for shoe tying specifically. So it was perfect. It was right up our alley. But... Basically, they highlighted that video modeling is effective because it allows more tighter control over the delivery of instruction, right? What do they call it? Antecedent instructional prompting. And then videos obviously can be produced, edited, re-edited based on what they need to make sure it's very precise and accurate. And then it creates a nice fidelity of instruction across people. And then it provides a point of view of the participant rather than the third person. So I thought those those were interesting uh, comments. Have you uh, done video modeling and what's your experience been? Yeah, when I think about uh, using modeling for this skill 
for a child that has a lot of interruptive behavior and particularly around screens, I want to stab myself in the eye with a pencil because the, you have to be such a fluent instructor to reinforce the correct response at the right time. And if there's any delay, it goes, I mean, it goes so bad. You have to start the whole thing again. Do you know what I mean? For high functioning kids that can look at a screen can then replicate that on their own pair of shoes, which might be completely different to what's in the video, by the way, you need a pretty high functioning kid to be able to do that without losing momentum in the teaching skill. And so, yeah, I've used video modeling for things like conversations is awesome because you can model someone having, you know, asking a conversation and then replicate that, you know, with a coach and for cooking and things like that, where there is plenty of time to sort of pause the video and then practice it and go back. But you can't do that with shoe tying because, you know, you've got the laces in the air and if you pause, mm-hmm. if you pause it for anyone that's tried to teach it for kids that find that skill very difficult, you know, it's really challenging to stop halfway through the thing. You lose the, uh, you know, the antecedents that they're supposed to be attending to. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think for some kids it could really work well. And it also, as you say, it's a consistent model that's always the same and you can, you know, parents can have the same video. There are some really good reasons to use it, but. In particular, with this case, it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> like, right, mm. right. And then you have the challenge of... It has to of, be client-specific. It has to be sure. client-specific, definitely. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot mm-hmm. of benefits to it. And there is, if you look on the the ASAP website, Association for Science and Autism Treatment, you'll see there is plenty of empirical support for the use of video and modelling in all sorts of different skills. Yeah, and I was thinking specifically for prompt-dependent, you know, students, because I do have some who get very prompt-dependent, so almost transitioning to the video modelling once they've learned the steps. Yeah, that's good feedback there. I know this is an issue with Sam, actually, in that he was having OT at school as well, and I got a report from the OT to say that he was able to tie his shoes, and I was just like a, a complete loss to understand that. But then when my OT reviewed her report, he she goes, oh, no, she's going to be talking about he can tie his shoes with assistance. In other words, someone sitting behind him and directing him because I couldn't even get him to hold their laces independently. So I said I never uh, helped him do it. I trained the component skills, I molded it for him and then I had him do it because I didn't want to leave behind a kid. Just like you said there, some kids can become really prompt dependent, then it's very hard to fade your physical prompts. So that's that's also something to be aware with different students that have a history of waiting to be prompted. You know, often it's better to to not use physical guidance or manual guidance as a strategy to start with if that's the sort of student you have in mind have have that have that you're teaching yeah i you know i think what i loved about this topic is there's so many different ways to teach you know and i think in ot at least we get a little stuck on one way so i like that we've got tag teaching obviously we've got precision teaching and then now we've also got video modeling and depending on the client you can start wherever you want that's and then, right you know, we didn't even talk about you know what behavioralists call backward chaining forward chaining or you oh know, i know we didn't even get to that <laughs> parts of the task but, yes but but ot's do that too so yes. that's something we have in common i think we both know it so me, we should really have an episode on that gosh there's so many episodes i need to stop so let's Let's talk about our next episode. Sure. We are going to be talking about 
visual activity schedules, which when you said that, I was like, what is a visual act? It, here, we actually just call it a visual schedule or yeah. schedule. And I also want to talk about sensory diets. How can we amalgamate the two? Because they, that is a reality. Most of our students need both. We're going to talk about what the latest research says. How can we blend these two aspects together? And how do we measure it if it works? Mandy, do you want to add your, I think you have a case study in mind that you might be pondering? Yeah, I do. I can now talk from the position of a parent. So for those of you that are working with parents, one of the things you uh, have as a huge challenge when you have a child with autism is it's almost impossible to do anything. So in the very early days, I was really fortunate before I qualified myself to have a psychologist that had worked uh, with Pat McClanahan and she's an expert in training visual schedules. So what it does is it allows kids to be independent for periods of time so that you can get stuff done. So... Yeah, what did you ask me again, Adeti? Did you say my... Do you had a case study you yes. thinking about? So I have a little boy that I work with who has really high rates of pica and left to his own devices for any period of time, he will put things dangerous objects in his mouth. So we have trained him to use an independent activity schedule to do puzzles and turn pages in a book to post coins, etc. for periods of time to pack, to get the activity, complete it, pack it away so that his parents can cook dinner and, you know, his kept busy and I think I'm reminded I think in the early days when I first read up on Lovas's study one of the things he might have said and I hope I'm not paraphrasing here but keep them busy is a clue to interrupt self-stimulatory behavior and activity schedules is a really awesome way of doing that plus it really makes you look at what are the skills of this child what they can do what can you teach them to do even if they have really you know poor play skills what are things we can do can they sit and listen to a story can they you know, post objects, can they complete simple puzzles? It really expands the repertoire of things they can do for periods of time independently on their own. And people in their life get time to do something and not have to be attending to them all the time. Lots of good reasons for it. So I remember the the phrase, avoid the void. Yes, avoid the void. That comes from direct instruction. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that sounds familiar. It's the same thing. Anyway, so... Or the devil's, Pardon? what did they say? The devil's work is in idle time or yes, something similar. It's I the same exactly. thing. Keep so, them busy, keep them on task. And this is visual schedule. So I'm excited to talk on that topic. Changed my life. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. So just takeaways from this episode. Mm-hmm. You know, Mandy's talked a lot about the component skills that are required for shoe tying. I think that's super important to look into because I think we all have different perspectives and we can come together and really amalgamate the physical and the behavioral aspects of shoe tying. I would like to direct everyone to a new group that I am starting. It's a behavioral OT group where uh, OTs, we meet once a month and chat about behavioral issues in OT. It's called Being a Behavioral OT. And we can vent, gripe, complain, talk about how Mandy's making us crazy. I don't know. (laughs) We'll talk about all sorts of things. But, you know, I think it's important to have a group of people who we can just throw ideas off each other and say, what do you think about this? What about that? No judgment, just chatting. We will be starting that once a month next month. And so be on the lookout for that. Great. Thanks, Adidas. All right. Thank you all.
Awesome. I was just going to say, on top of that, can I add something to that? Because I, oh, sure. I am looking to employ an OT in my practice. And oh. so, <laughs> sorry, so you're getting your little tip in there. I get mine as well. So if there are any OTs out there that sound really excited by a new frontier that Aditya and I are breaking into called behavioral OT, where you use all of your awesome skills as an OT and then get trained in behavior analysis, um, please look me up at www.fitlearning.com.au and um, let me know. And we would love to um, to invite you in and, and show you what we do. Yeah. And I think actually from our group, we might elicit some of that. So I love yeah, that. Keep you posted. Bless. Mandy didn't hire me. I, I offered to join, but she said I wasn't good enough. <laughs> well, if, you <laughs> if it wasn't for COVID, I would have you out here in a heartbeat. I know, really, right? Okay. So remember, the most valuable resource that we have as therapists is each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So hashtag collaboration over competition. And until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Huru from Down Under.